On this episode of Skeptico, Alex talks with neuroscientist and near-death experiencer Eben Alexander. One thing that we will have to let go of is this kind of addiction to simplistic, primitive, reductive materialism. Uh, because there's, there's really no way that I can see a reductive materialist model coming remotely in the right ballpark to explain what we really know about consciousness now. And, you know, coming from a neurosurgeon who, uh, before my coma, I thought I was quite certain how the brain and the mind interacted. And it was very clear in that realm that uh, the brain gives you consciousness and everything else. And when the brain dies, there goes consciousness, soul, mind, it's all gone. And it was clear. Now, having been through my coma, I can tell you that that's exactly wrong. And that, in fact, the mind and consciousness uh, are independent of the brain. Stay with us for Skeptico. Welcome to Skeptico, where we explore controversial science with leading researchers, thinkers, and their critics. I'm your host, Alex Sikaris, and on today's episode, we have an interview with Dr. Eben Alexander, a very highly respected neurosurgeon, neuroscientist, who also happens to be an NDE experiencer. It's a fascinating interview and a topic that was suggested by you, the Skeptico listeners, and I thank you for that. Let's get right to the interview. Today, we welcome Dr. Eben Alexander to Skeptico. Dr. Alexander has been an academic neurosurgeon for more than 25 years, including 15 years at Harvard Medical School in Boston. And in November of 2008, he had a near-death experience that changed his life and caused him to rethink everything he thought he knew about the human brain and consciousness. Dr. Alexander, welcome to Skeptico. Thank you. It's good to be here. Well, your story is really quite amazing. And for those who haven't heard of it and don't and aren't aware of what you went through, do you want to tell us a little bit about your experience? Yes. Um, it, uh, it really struck out of the blue. Uh, I had been uh, quite healthy up until that time. In fact, I was in reasonably good shape because my older son had been uh, putting me through a big workout, anticipating a climb of a 20,000-foot volcano in South America. Wow. Luckily, I was in pretty good shape. And um, about 4.30 in the morning, um, November 10th, 2008, I got out of bed. I was getting ready to go up to work. I was working in Charlottesville at the time. And I had uh, severe sudden back pain, much worse than I had ever experienced. And uh, literally within 10 or 15 minutes, it it got me to a point where I could not even take a step. I was really in tremendous agony, and my wife, Holly, was uh, rubbing my back. And then my older son, I mean, my younger son, Bond, came in and saw I was in a lot of distress, and he started rubbing my temples. And I realized when he did that, I had a severe headache. It was like he took a railroad spike and put it through my head. But I was already really going down very quickly. I didn't know it at the time. Found out much later that uh, I had uh, acute bacterial meningitis, and it was with a very unusual bacteria and one that uh, 
um, the incidence of E. coli, of spontaneous E. coli meningitis in adults in the U.S. is about one in 10 million per year. So it's, it's really rare. We never found out where it came from. But at any rate, it uh, within about two, two and a half hours, uh, drove me deep down. And uh, in fact, uh, my last words really were to my wife, uh, don't call 911. Trust me, I'm a doctor. And luckily, <laughs> she overruled that. And uh, she did that because she saw me having a grand mal seizure on the bed. Of course, I don't remember that. And I really don't remember anything that happened for the next week because I was I was gone. And uh, I was very sick during that time, as I as I heard later. In fact, uh, I was so sick that my uh, I was on a ventilator the whole week. And in fact, they did several lumbar punctures uh, trying to guide therapy. I was on triple antibiotics uh, very early on uh, due to a, a very good medical team. But they did a lumbar puncture about the second or third day into this, and my cerebrospinal fluid glucose, which is normally around 60 to 80, uh, and in a bad case of meningitis might dropped down to about 20. Well, my glucose went down to one. So I was really sick. So at this point, nothing should be going on in your brain. And yet something was happening in your conscious awareness. Yeah, I'd say that's correct. It's, uh, I mean, the to me, and and I spent uh, more than, you know, the, the last three years, I've spent a lot of time trying to explain this and that explanation initially all I was doing was trying to explain it neuroscientifically um, and I mean meningitis is very helpful because it's probably better than anything else at really diffusely wiping out the neocortex uh, but one could always argue that there's uh, some idling function at a deep level um, that might still survive and in fact one of the hypotheses that I entertained about all this was uh, because the experience that I'll describe to you uh, seemed very hyper-real, extremely crisp and vivid, much more uh, real and interactive than uh, sitting here and talking with you right now. I mean, it was uh, extraordinary. And that is something that is often described in near-death experiences. And, And, of course, one of my early hypotheses was, well, maybe there was some differential effect against uh, inhibitory neuronal networks that allowed overexpression of excitatory neural networks and gave this illusion of uh, kind of a hyper-real situation. And I I can tell you from having lived through it that uh, it was so powerful and so beyond uh, that kind of explanation that I wasn't very hopeful that 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 would uh, work out in the end, um, but I figured I, I needed to give it a chance and look at the uh, microanatomy uh, in the cortex and the different connections with the thalamus and basal ganglia, see if I could come up with some way um, that one might have an illusion of hyperreality. But I, I can tell you, because of the kind of content of the experience and kind of the powerful, overwhelming nature of it and the fact that it was so complex, uh, I think much of what I remembered from that experience, I don't think my brain and mind could possibly manage even now. I mean, the the kind of mental function that occurs when you're in that hyperreal state, the, the way that information comes in from spiritual beings and uh, kind of the interaction with them is so intense and uh, extraordinary. It's, it's really inexplicable in, 
in kind of earthly terms, but it uh, it would uh, basically outrun any of those kind of uh, theories. But that was something I was looking for. And in fact, I never found a kind of an anatomic distribution that would support uh, kind of that overactivity of excitatory pathways. Mm-hmm. Okay, so great. Thanks for doing that. I think we've jumped a little bit ahead of the story. For for those who don't know, tell us a little bit about your NDE. Okay, well, I think, you know, you were asking, what is it like when uh, when one is has their cortex shut down like that? And, and in fact, uh, for one thing, I was surprised I remembered anything, because as a neurosurgeon, having had many patients who were in coma for various reasons and had a lot of them recover, um, I, my understanding was that in general, you don't really remember anything. Even when the patients uh, uh, seem to be uh, interacting, uh, I knew that usually if they'd been sick, for instance, with a meningitis, that, that they really wouldn't remember much of it. Occasionally, there were exceptions to that. You'd have patients who would remember very remarkable things from deep inside. Uh, but, you know, before I had always kind of explained that away with the standard answers, oh, this is what the brain does when it's very sick. Um, what I do remember from deep inside coma, uh, for one thing, my first awareness uh, was of not, I had no memory whatsoever of my life. I had no language, no words. Um, all of my experience in life, knowledge of humans, uh, you know, earth, the universe, all that was gone. Uh, And the only thing I had was this very uh, kind of crude existence, and and I call it in in my book, I call it the earthworm's eye view, uh, because it really was just a very crude kind of underground of, I I have a vivid memory of dark roots above me, and it was, there was kind of a monotonous, pounding, uh, dull sound in the background, pounding away eternally. And it was just murky and gross. Every now and then, I, uh, you know, a face, or animal, or something would kind of boil up out of the muck, and there might be some chant or roar or something, and then they'd disappear again. And it it sounds very foreboding to talk about it right now, but in fact, since I knew no, no other existence, uh, I don't remember being particularly alarmed when I was in that setting. And and I I think that that was the best kind of consciousness that my brain could muster when it was soaking in pus. And uh, it turns out that that seemed to last for a very long time. I mean, given that it was my first awareness of anything, it it actually seemed to be years or eternity. I don't know. It seemed like a very, very long time. And then there was a spinning melody, this bright melody that just started spinning in front of me. Beautiful, beautiful melody compared to that dull, pounding uh, sound that I, I had heard for eons. And it spun, and as it spun around, it cleared everything away. And this was the part that was so shocking and so hard to explain. It was as if the blinders came off. And the reality there was was much more crisp, real, and interactive and fresh than any reality I've ever known in this in this earthly existence. And that part is very shocking and hard to explain when you go through it. And yet, what I've found since then is a lot of people who have had NDEs discuss the same kind of hyperreality. But it's very shocking to see it. And for me, uh, it was uh, – I was a speck on a butterfly wing. I had no 
uh, no body awareness at all. In fact, I had no body awareness through this entire kind of deep coma experience. And I was a speck on a beautiful butterfly wing. Millions of other butterflies uh, around us. We were flying through uh, through blooming flowers, blossoms on trees, and they were all kind of coming out as we flew through them. And beside me on the butterfly wing was a beautiful girl. And I remember her face to this day, absolutely a beautiful girl, blue eyes, and she was dressed in what, when I was trying to write all this up in the months after I came back, uh, I described as kind of a peasant garb, but I can remember the colors very well, kind of a, a peach orange and a powder blue, just really beautiful. She never said a word to me, and she was looking at me, and her thoughts would just come into my awareness, and her thoughts things like, you are loved, you are cherished forever, there is nothing you can do wrong, you have nothing to worry about, you will be taken care of. And it was so soothing and so beautiful. And of course, as I said, my language wasn't really working then. So those particular words are words I had to put on it when I came back out. But a lot of this flowed uh, perfectly uh, when I came back out. In fact, I didn't read anything about near-death experiences or about physics or cosmology um, because of the, the advice of my older son, Eben IV, who was majoring in neuroscience at University of Delaware, and he advised me uh, you know, three days after I left the hospital when he came home for Thanksgiving back in 2008. He said, well, if you want to write this up as a useful report, don't read anything. Just write everything down you can remember. And I spent the next two months typing everything I could remember in the computer, and it came out to about 100 pages of memories from this deep experience with, within the coma. Um, I think from that, from that beautiful uh, valley scene on the butterfly wing, um, waterfalls, pools of water, indescribable colors, uh, and above there were these arcs of silver and gold light uh, and beautiful hymns coming down from them, indescribably gorgeous hymns. And I later came to call uh, them angels, those arcs of light in the sky. Um, and I think that word is probably fairly accurate. Um, the On this butterfly wing, the first time I was there, I remember um, having this uh, sensation. It was as if there was a warm summer breeze that just blew by, and then everything changed. And the scene stayed the same. But I became aware, again, in, in looking back on it, my, that was my awareness of, of a divine presence, of incredibly indescribable, uh, kind of a, a super power of divinity. And then we went out of this universe. And I remember just seeing everything receding. And initially I felt as if my awareness was in a gigantic, I mean, an infinite uh, black void. It was very comforting, but I could feel the extent of the infinity and, and that it was, as you would expect, impossible to put into words. Um, and I was there with that divine presence that was not anything that I could visibly see and describe and with an orb, a brilliant orb of light 
uh, and and there was a distinct uh, sensation for me or memory that they were not one and the same. And I don't know what that means. In my awareness, when I say I was aware, uh, this goes far, far beyond uh, the consciousness of any one. This was not Eben Alexander's consciousness, aware of being in that space. Uh, I was far beyond that point, way beyond any kind of human consciousness, and really just one consciousness. And when I got there, they said that I would be going back. But uh, I didn't know what that meant, and they said there were many things that they would show me, and they they continued to do that. And in fact, the whole higher dimensional multiverse was this incredibly complex corrugated ball, and all these lessons coming into me about it, and part of the lessons involved becoming all of what I was being shown, and uh, it was indescribable. Uh, but then I would find myself, and time out there, I can say, is totally different from what we call time. Uh, I mean, there was access from out there to any part of our space-time, and that made it difficult to understand a lot of these memories because we always try to sequ sequence things and put them in a linear form and description, and that just really doesn't work. But uh, suffice it to say that I would find myself back at the earthworm eye view. And, and what I learned was if I could recall the notes of that melody, the spinning melody, uh, that would start the melody spinning again. That would take me back into that beautiful, crisp, clear, hyper-real valley on the butterfly wing. My guardian angel was always there, and she was always very comforting. And then we would go out into what I came to call the core, which was outside of the entire uh, physical universe. And again, they would show lessons, and often those lessons would involve becoming a tremendous part of what they were demonstrating. And so much of it is just indescribable, and uh, so much of it you really – I mean, there are, are reasons why we cannot bring a lot of that back. Uh, and there are reasons, uh, in fact, why – I mean, I've come to see, uh, you know, that we're conscious in in spite of our brain, uh, and it really, to me, that makes a lot more sense. And I go into detail about all that in my book. But uh, it turns out that I would uh, oscillate from this uh, beautiful idyllic place in the core, uh, coming back down into. Um, Earthworm eye view, and it seems it was three or four times. Like I said, sequencing was so strange because when I was in the earthworm eye view, um, everything seemed to be one kind of soup of just kind of mixed foam, and, and there it was very hard to put sequence on it. But it was very clear to me that several times I would use the memory of those notes and spin that melody and go back in. And uh, then it just, and they would always say, you, you are not here to stay. Now, Dr. Alexander, a couple of questions. Uh -huh. First, uh, what is the title of your book? Okay, well, um, I, uh, I'm going through uh, several possible uh, okay. uh, agents right now. I don't have a publisher, and I have a feeling that uh, you know, agents and publishers will have their own ideas. Uh, what I can tell you is the tentative working title. Uh, right now, and this could easily change, um, is uh, life life beyond death, uh, a neurosurgeon's life-changing near-death uh, odyssey. Let me 
hone in on a couple of things. It's an amazing experience, an amazing account. Tell us a little bit about coming back into this world, because I want to hone in on a couple of things that we need to nail down if we're going to really try and understand this account from our world. And what I want to one thing I want to na- nail down is the time perspective. How do we know that these memories were formed during the time when you're in a coma? You've already laid out a couple of points about that in that normally we wouldn't even expect you to have a lot of clear, coherent memories three days after coming out of this coma, but you said that's when you started writing down this account. You also said you tried not to contaminate your memories with talking to other people. So those are good parts of your story. What are some other aspects of it that you can tell us that make you confident that these memories were formed while you were in this severely compromised mental state? I can tell you when I first started waking up, it was very shocking because I, as I said, I didn't have memories of my life before and my family, loved ones, sisters, my wife and sons, uh, they were there. And so initially, I, in fact, I have a very distinct memory as I was emerging, which was on the seventh day of coma. Uh, and I still had the, I was still on the ventilator, still had the endotracheal tube in. And um, my awareness was of several faces. And I remember one was my wife and one was uh, a good friend of ours who was also my infectious disease doctor and a neighbor, Dr. Scott Wade. And uh, then one was also my 10-year-old son. And these faces were there. I did not recognize them. They would say words. I didn't understand the words. But I had a very powerful visual memory. They would kind of boil up out of the muck and then they go away. I'm fairly sure that that was Sunday morning because – much, much later, after I'd written everything down, and I did start asking people about things that had happened, uh, it seemed that that's when people were were doing that. Now, in fact, they'd been doing it all week, but I'd been, I think I was unaware of it during the week. And that's mainly based on the people that I do remember uh, seeing, who were only those who were there that Sunday morning. Um, and my language started coming back very quickly, and, and so did my visual cortex, because I think, and again, it's so hard to put a, a time label on this, uh, but in talking with people who were there, I think that probably over an hour or two or three, uh, I started getting language back quickly, my auditory cortex started coming online, my ability to understand speech, so what's called Wernicke's area in the dominant temporal uh, lobe was starting to come back up to speed, and I can understand things. I could then start making speech. Um, so I was having a very rapid uh, return of, of cortical function, um, but I was still kind of in and out of reality. I, In fact, in my book, I go into great tale describing what I call the nightmare, uh, which was kind of a paranoid, uh, crazy thing that where I was halfway in and out of the reality. And and my uh, son, my younger son, Bond, <laughs> I mean, he, he can describe it to you. It's, it was kind of a very frightening thing because I would seem to be with it. And then I'd be saying things that were just out of, out of my mind. And of course, initially, as I explained to some of my physicians, what I remembered was which, which, this incredibly powerful, hyper-real spiritual experience. They would say, oh, yes, well, you, you were very, very sick. We thought you were going to die. <laughs> and... Um, 
you know, I can't even believe that you're you're back. I mean, they were predicting that I would have two to three months in the hospital and then need chronic care for the rest of my life. So they were obviously quite shocked that I that I came back like I did. It was just so strange. But initially, I thought, well, gosh, it was it was almost too real to be real. I mean, it, it, that hyper-reality that people describe, I just wish uh, we could bottle that up and give it to people so they could see what it's like. Because it is not something that is going to be explained by these little simplistic uh, kind of, you know, talking about CO2 and oxygen levels. And I mean, that, that just won't work. I promise you that won't work. That's an interesting point because, as you mentioned briefly, you know it won't work because you actually went and tried to see if there was a model that you were aware of from your training that could fit your experience, right? So you became a, a near-death experience-er who became a near-death experience researcher from a neurophysiological standpoint. And I think that's one of the things that really draws people to your story. Tell us a little bit more about your your quest to understand this from your from the perspective of your background as a neurosurgeon. Okay. Well, I can tell you that, uh, you know, I mentioned a few minutes ago that initially I, uh, I, w- I was kind of getting the message from my physicians that I was extremely sick. And, you know, it, it, it doesn't surprise them that, uh, that uh, I had very, very unusual memories. Um, there was one other thing that, that really got my attention that I'll mention, and that is I, I told you about the faces I saw kind of floating in the muck, uh, which I think – you know, again, it, it's a hard to put a time on it. I know that some of them appeared uh, that Sunday morning and, and maybe the Saturday afternoon, and some could have could have been earlier. And there was one that that I think was earlier, although she seems like all the rest. Uh, and her her name is Susan Wrenches, and she's a friend of my wife's. They worked together, you know, 25 years earlier teaching in Raleigh, and uh, uh, Susan's had a lot of experience of. Uh, helping coma patients. She wrote a book called Third Eye Open. Um, and it involves uh, her going into a state or trance and and then going to them, you know, in whatever fashion. I, that's not something I claim to understand, uh, but not through the physical material realm. Uh, and in fact, she had done that with a lot of patients and she discussed that in her book. And she Holly called her up. Uh, I think it was Thursday night that uh, Susan heard all this and said, "Yes, I'll try and help." And I remember her being there very clearly. I mean, just like all the rest, she was there, and uh, she she never was physically there. Uh, she did this from Chapel Hill, where she lives. Um, and of course, in the first few days, as I was coming around, and I told my wife about the six faces that I remembered. Uh, that does not include my guardian angel, who I, I still didn't know at that time. Uh, but those six faces, I said, and, and Susan Wrenches was there, and and Holly said, well, she she did come to you, you know, channeling or whatever. She came to you in the psychic realm, and I can tell you when Holly told me that, I said, yeah, of course, you know, you know, don't need any explanation for that. And of course, as as I healed, it probably took three or four weeks for a lot of my neuroscience and neurosurgical training to come back. And all along that time, uh, I, you know, I was still writing all this down and, and not reading anything. I was very tempted, but my son had told me, you want this to be worthwhile, don't read anything else, just write it all down. And I was 
I just was shocked. I was buffeted because my neuroscience mind said, no, that couldn't happen. The more I heard about how sick I was, my cortex shut down. No, that's impossible. Your cortex was down. And of course, for a while, I was going after the uh, hypotheses that involved formation of these very complex, intricate memories, either right before my coma or right coming out of it. Uh, and of course, that really did not explain it at all. Uh, part of the problem when you get right down to it is that whole issue of remembering the melody because that that was a very clear part of it uh, that I, I remember the elation when I figured that I could just remember that melody and that spun the melody in front of me and then all of a sudden boom everything opened up and I went back out into that valley so crisp and beautiful and my my angel was with me as I came to call her, my companion on the butterfly wing, and then out into the core, outside of the universe. And uh, very difficult to explain that fluctuation. Uh, I guess one could always argue, well, your brain was probably, you know, just barely able to ignite real consciousness, and then it would flip back into a very diseased state, which doesn't make any sense to me, especially because that hyper-real state is so indescribable and so crisp. It's totally unlike any drug experience. A lot of people have come up to me and said, oh, that sounds like a DMT experience or that sounds like ketamine. And, you know, not at all. I mean, that is not even in the right ballpark. Those things uh, do not explain the kind of clarity, the rich interactivity, the uh, layer upon layer of kind of understanding and of lessons taught by deceased loved ones and spiritual beings um, and of course, they're all deceased loved ones. I've, I've, I've kind of wondered, you know, where is it that these people are coming from that they say, oh, the brain was very sick, uh, but it was very selective and made sure it only remembered deceased loved ones. I mean, uh, they're just not hearing something. You know, I think that's, that brings up a very interesting point and one that we've covered a lot on this on this show because – to be fair, well, not only to be fair, but to try and really understand the entire phenomena and understand how it fits in our culture, in our society, which I think is important because here you are, someone like yourself with your obvious intellectual capabilities, but also medical understanding, and you have this experience, and you have to come back and try and make it make sense with all your training, and I think all the rest of us are right there with you, trying to make sense of these completely counterintuitive experiences and then trying to jam them back in our head and in our experience. And in that sense, I do have a lot of empathy and appreciation for the NDE researchers, both the skeptical ones and the non-skeptical ones. So let me talk a little bit about that NDE research and get your perspective on it. Because, of course, there are a few of these brave researchers out there who've stuck their neck out, really only a very few, and have tried to tackle this. But it seems to me that they're really barely making a dent in the medical model that we have. I mean, the medical mm -hmm. model that we have sees us as these biological robots and death as kind of the ultimate boogeyman. And can we really believe that we're going to change such an entrenched system? I think so. I, I think uh, that is very much... Uh uh, a possibility, and what it really takes, um, you know, there's this this whole issue of mind and brain, and uh, you know, kind of duality. Um, 
uh, versus non-dualism and uh, kind of material, the physical material reductivist uh, kind of models. And I think, uh, you know, I, I'll go into this in great detail in my book, but I think you have to go back about 3,000 years to really get to the be beginning of the discussion and to start to see why uh, certain things have transpired. And I think most importantly uh, was the part of this discussion that happened between uh, Rene Descartes uh, and uh, Spinoza, uh, you know, back in the 17th century. Uh, they kind of started us into our current era, and it's, our current era is one of uh, kind of mind, uh, you know, and our consciousness and our soul, and all that has been uh, put in the realm of the church, more or less. That, that was kind of a, a truce of sorts that I guess Descartes uh, came up with uh, back then to say there's mind and then there's uh, body and uh, you know, just let the natural uh, scientists, uh, those with an interest like Francis Bacon and Galileo and Newton, uh, you know, let's not burn them all at the stake. Uh, let some of them survive. So I think it was a good thing to have that truce uh, so that uh, science survived. I mean, I'm a scientist and I, I love science and the scientific method. I've just come to realize that the, the universe is much grander than, uh, than we appreciate. And so I have to simply broaden uh, my definitions. I think science is still very important to get us there. Uh, getting back to you know, that mind-brain issue, what happened over time, of course, is science uh, kind of grew up and got to be more and more powerful at uh, giving us many things. And, and science has been a real uh, wonder. Uh, but I think that uh, it's been somewhat at a price, uh, and that price came from splitting out, uh, you know, mind and, and body back then in that kind of dualistic approach, uh, because as science gained more and more of an upper hand, uh, people were losing track of 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 the the kind of mind part of it, the consciousness part. Let's talk about that a little bit right now, because part of that does seem to be contradictory to your experience and the experience we've heard from other folks who've had these transformative spiritual experiences in this way, in that if there is this broader knowing, and much broader knowing, broader doesn't even begin to describe it, but that we hear over and over again. We hear it from your account. We hear it from many near-death experience accounts. We also hear it from all sorts of transformative spiritual accounts, Kundalini accounts, spontaneous spiritual awakenings, there's this sense of knowing, much, much greater knowing, that then, that then must be kind of crammed back into our body, and, and it doesn't mm -hmm. fit, you know? So your account says that, and others do as well. Can we really then hope to get out of the consciousness loop that we're in now? Can, is it just going to be a matter of, oh, a philosophical shift like we had back in the 1700s, or is there something fundamental to the way that we're constructed that's going to keep us limited in how much we can really tap into and understand that knowing that, that, that you experienced? In my view, what, what I think is going to happen uh, is that uh, science, in the much broader sense of the word, and spirituality, which will be mainly an acknowledgment of the profound nature of our consciousness uh, will grow closer and closer together 
and we will all move forward uh, into a far more enlightened world. Uh, one thing that we will have to let go of is this uh, uh, kind of addiction to simplistic, primitive, reductive materialism uh, because there's, there's really no way that I can see a reductive materialist model coming remotely in the right ballpark to explain what we really know about consciousness now. And, you know, coming from a neurosurgeon who, uh, before my coma, I thought I was quite certain how the brain and the mind interacted, and it was clear to me that there were many things I could do or see done on my patients, and it would eliminate consciousness. And, and, it, and it was very clear uh, in that realm that uh, the brain gives you consciousness and everything else. And when the brain dies, there goes consciousness, soul, mind. It's all gone. And it was clear. Now, having been through my coma, I can tell you that that's exactly wrong. And that, in fact, uh, the, main and the mind and consciousness uh, are independent of the brain. It's very hard to explain that. Uh, certainly, if you're, if you're limiting yourself to that reductive materialist view, and to any of the, any of the scientists in the crowd uh, who want to get in on this, what I would recommend um, there's there's one book that I kind of consider uh, the Bible of this, and it's a wonderful book. But it it is uh, really for those who have a strong scientific interest in it, and it's called Irreducible Mind. Uh, Edward Kelly, Emily Williams Kelly, uh, Bruce Grayson, you know Adam Crabtree, Alan Gold, uh, Michael Grasso, the whole group. Uh, from Esalen and also based in uh, the Division of Perceptual Studies at the University of Virginia, uh, have done an incredibly good job toward a psychology for the 21st century. It's the subtitle, and that's exactly what it is. And I thought their book was, was uh, quite illustrative, and of course it caused a huge splash when it came out in 1987. But again, a lot of the reductive materialists like myself were uh, not really going to put in the work to, uh, you know, go through all of that. And we just thought, well, we can't understand it, so it can't be true. I think you're, you're being a little bit too generous there, because some of the folks do do the work, <laughs> do tap into the research, and still come out the other end holding on to that materialistic model that we're stuck with here, because there's a lot invested in it. And with that, what I wanted to do was, I've sent you a couple of audio clips that I thought you might like to respond to, and because it fits into what you were just talking about, people who have been walked in your shoes and are still there in that model. So the first clip I'd like to play for you is a former guest on this show, Dr. Stephen Novella, who is a clinical neurologist at Yale University, a well-known and outspoken skeptic of near-death experiences, but a, a, a nice guy who's willing to engage the topic. So what I thought I'd do is play this little clip and see any response you might have to it, okay? All right. The three basic kinds of explanations are, one, it's spiritual, that it represents the fact that the mind can exist separate from the brain. The second one is that it's a psychological experience of some sort. And then the third is that it's, it's, it's organic, it's, it's neurophysiological. The evidence and the, some of the best explanatory models that people are putting forward are blending the second two, the psychological and the, the organic, the, the neuroscientific. I think what we're seeing is that there's a core experience that's primarily organic. 
It's what just the kinds of things that can happen to the brain under various kinds of stress. Now, I got to add that if you really listen to the whole interview with Steve and the follow-up that we had, what he's talking about is really a bunch of fluff. (laughs) There Mm -hmm. There really isn't any research that shows any neurophysiological cause for near-death experience. And I really kind of held his feet to the fire, and he was unable to produce anything of really any real substance about that research. But maybe you can talk, because it speaks so much to, I guess, the position that you were in just a few years ago about that position and that kind of entrenched it-has-to-be-in-the-brain kind of thing and how you think that relates to near-death experience. I I would say, for one thing, I think that... uh, you know, a healthy, uh, skeptical approach to all of this is a, is a good thing because it helps us get to the truth. It helps us know the answer. Uh, and what we have to be careful of, of course, is not getting in the trap of having our prejudice uh, rule the day. Because a lot of these uh, experiments, a lot of these studies, um, how you interpret them will depend a lot on of, you know, what your prejudices are going in. And uh, I found uh, early on in my experience, uh, I had to do as Descartes recommended uh, when he was talking about getting to the truth, and that was to really uh, to ignore or to reject everything, everything I had ever accepted as real. That was the only way to start getting to where I could figure any of this out. And... Um, I know that uh, a lot of the reductive uh, kind of scientific crowd out there, I I have a favorite quote from Stephen Hawking. He says, there's a fundamental difference between religion, which is based on authority or imposed dogma and faith, as opposed to science, which is based on observation and reason. And what I would say is, I think his statement is true as a general statement, but that science, and certainly those who believe in science and scientists, are as prone to addiction to impose dogma and faith as uh, as are uh, you know religious zealots. So one has to be very careful to really step back and want to know the truth, and that's what I think we all would like to know. In this case, if we really do step back, one of the things that's troubling to me, and you touched on it a minute ago, is how overwhelming the evidence seems to be at this point we can confidently say that, one, near-death experiences didn't just start happening in the last 20 years since we had advanced resuscitation techniques. We can confidently say that 4 or 5% of everyone who has a cardiac arrest is having this. There's obviously hundreds of millions of people over time who've had these accounts, and we have thousands and thousands of well-documented, consistent accounts across cultures, across times, these are the measures that we would normally use to say this is a real phenomena. And then when, when the skeptics have been, and really the scientists, the mainstream scientists, have pounded against it for 20 years with really what amounts to a bunch of kind of very silly explanations, but ones that have been carefully looked at and, and dismissed, you know, is it CO2, is it fear of death? Is it other psychological factors? Is it all the different things? REM intrusion, all these things. Clearly, 
th- this would normally be something where we, we, we'd be putting a lot of attention into it, or that it would then become the presumed explanation for it. But none of that's happening. They, they, they have managed to kind of hold back the dike, you know. Uh, so, so what do you make of that? Okay, well, uh, I think, you know, in trying to get back to your original question uh, with the, the previous uh, guest, um, to me, one thing that has emerged from my experience and from very rigorous analysis of that experience over several years, talking it over with, with others that I respect in neuroscience, uh, and really trying to come up with an answer, is that uh, consciousness outside of the brain uh, is a fact. It's an established fact. And of course, you know, that was a hard place for me to to get. Coming from, you know, being card-toting reductive materialist over decades, it was very difficult to get to knowing that consciousness, that our, there's a soul of us that that is not dependent on the brain. And as much as I, I know all the uh, reductive materialist arguments against that, I think part of the problem is it's like the guy looking for his keys under the streetlight, and reductive materialists are under the streetlight uh, because that's where they can see things. But in fact, if your keys are lost out in the darkness, uh, the techniques there are no good. And it is only by letting go of that reductive materialism and opening up to what is a far more profound uh, understanding of consciousness and this is where I think, uh, you know, for me as a scientist, um, I look at uh, quantum mechanics, uh, and I go into this in great detail in my book, um, is, uh, is a huge part of kind of the smoking gun. It shows us that there's something going on there about consciousness that, that our primitive models don't get. And uh, it's far more profound than, than I ever realized before. I mean, that, that's where I'm coming from because my experience showed me very clearly uh, that incredibly powerful consciousness, far beyond what I'm trapped in here in the earthly realm, begins to emerge as you get rid of that filtering mechanism of the brain. I mean, it is really astonishing, and that is what we need to explain. And thousands or millions of near-death experiencers have talked about this. Not only that, but of course, uh, as you mentioned a few minutes ago, people don't even have to go to a near-death situation. There are plenty of mystical experiences uh, that have occurred over millennia that are part of the same mechanism. And that's why all this talk about oxygen, tension, CO2, and all that, you can pretty much throw out the window because you really need to be working towards explaining all of those phenomena. And part of the problem is they're hard to explain. But that is a clue that, in fact, that's where the – who was it that – Willie Lomans, whoever they asked him, why do you rob banks? He said, because that's where the money is. Well, same kind of thing. They're hard issues. And the whole uh, understanding of what consciousness really involves, and I came a lot closer to that in my coma experience and coming out of it and in doing all the very intense homework for the three years since then to try and understand it. Um, And that, uh, that... it's a difficult question because it's close to the real truth that we're going after. You know, if it were easy, uh, you know, it would be widely available. And it would have already been written up by somebody who wanted to publish or perish. And that's, uh, that's not, uh, not how it works. It's not that easy. 
Dr. Alexander, in the little bit of time we have left, what's it been like being so public about your experience? Well, you know, people, many people have come up to me and said, wow, this takes a lot of courage to do this. Um, You know, it probably would have taken courage to talk like this right after I came out of it, and I learned to put the lid on it. But then as I did more and more work and talk with more people and started realizing, oh, my gosh, this is all real, then uh, I can tell you it takes no courage at all. Because it's simply, it is so powerful to know this. And, uh, and I think, and one, one thing I'm trying to do in my book is to uh, show why it's so logical, why this is a very rational way for things to work. And especially when you really delve into uh, the profound mis- mystery of conscious existence. Uh, and again, I'd recommend Irreducible Mind uh, to any people with a scientific bent who really want to get into it. Go in there, and and because the whole issue is far far deeper uh, than we would like to think, and it's it's absolutely wonderful to to realize this, and I think it's going to change this world in wonderful ways. But a big part of it, of course, is to try and broaden the boundaries of science and of what we accept and will use to get towards truth. And uh, I'm very hopeful that science and spirituality will come together hand in hand and go forward to help with these, the, getting these answers and help people to understand the true nature of our existence. And a side effect, of course, will be that humanity and kind of the uh, grace and uh, harmony that we will see uh, around this world will expand tremendously uh, as we move forward in that fashion. Well, great. It's certainly a, an amazing account, and you do a great job of bringing forth this uh, this information. So we wish you the best of luck with that, and we'll certainly look forward to your book coming out when? Probably next year, maybe sometime? I certainly hope so. I'm hoping to finish it now, and I do have a web page, which is lifebeyonddeath.net. For any people who have an interest, I'll tell you, I'm so busy on the book, you can send me email, sign up for the newsletter, whatever, but I won't be responding for a few months. So if people are interested, they're welcome to get in touch, sign up for the newsletter, which won't be coming out until I've done the book. Um, and then we'll move move from there. But um, it's uh, just a, a wonderful gift, and I think people will see that it actually makes more sense than anything else has so far. And that's why I think it's, it's, it's of inestimable value to get this out to the world. Great. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it, Alex. Thanks again to Dr. Alexander for joining me today on Skeptico. And I certainly wish him success with his book. And I know he's very hopeful that his book and his experience will advance this topic forward and help us come to a deeper understanding of what's really going on with near-death experience. But... I don't think it's going to (laughs) happen. I think he's way too optimistic about the amount of change that he's going to be able to bring. I think we're just too deeply entrenched in our biological robot mindset paradigm that we're in. But hey, that's just my opinion, and I certainly hope that I'm wrong. And I certainly hope that you'll tell me if you think I'm wrong, either on the Skeptico website at S-K-E-P-T-I-K-O 
www.thinkingmindset.com or in our forum, which you'll also find from our website, or by just dropping me an email or connecting with me on Facebook. And also, if you'd like more information about this show, please visit that website. We have over 150 previous shows in our library. We invite you to check those out. Well, that's going to do it for today. Until next time, take care. Bye for now.